And if we ever need reminding, I'll tell you, when I need reminding, right? I hope you came here today, no matter how you're feeling, knowing that you're going to hear God's Word this morning. We're going to sing praises to His name. We're going to, uh, we're going to pray together because uh, we live in dark days, but Jesus is on His throne, and we just need to remind ourselves of that. Amen? Well, you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 36. John 12, verse 36. And I'm excited to let you know that uh, we've got some new pew Bibles there uh, right in front of you. So uh, if you didn't have the Bible downloaded on your device or if you didn't bring your Bible with you, we would invite you to join us because we want you to have God's Word in your hands. We'll display it up here on the screen as we go along, but we want you to see God's Word. Don't just take it from my, my Word. Believe God's Word. Amen? And so uh, our passage is found on page 845, 845 in the Pew Bible. They're provided to you, and it's the translation, the English Standard Version that we use here uh, for most of our preaching here at Valley Bible Church, so I hope you enjoy that. <clears throat> and I want to encourage you, too. I grabbed a card that was out there in, in the center in the lobby as you walked in. You might have seen these. Pastor Larry Howard in, your, in the announcements, if you didn't hear earlier. Uh, we're, we're actually grabbing these cards, and we're praying for one team or one cabin or one crew throughout our summer youth programs and kids programs because we want to see young people come to faith in Jesus. Amen? I mean, do we want to see young people come to faith in Jesus? Amen, right. But every great gospel movement doesn't happen without prayer. And so we invite you. And in fact, I, I grabbed a card here for uh, a cabin led by Daniel Martinez and Abraham Sanson for a cabin of sixth grade boys. So I'm going to be praying a lot this week. As our middle school goes off to camp, a cabin full of sixth grade boys. Lord Jesus, help those people. Those cabin leaders, my goodness, that should be quite an adventure that they'll have, and I'm sure they'll sleep for days once they get back, right? Uh, but we want to invite you to join us in praying for our young people uh, for the next few weeks. Uh, when we come to John chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 36, and we're getting toward the end of our current series because we're getting to the end of John chapter 12, and we're calling this Jesus Farewell Tour. Jesus Farewell Tour tour. Now, he's coming to a point in his ministry where it's getting to the point where he's going to come and accomplish the thing for which he was sent. Now, it wasn't merely to teach, so that was part of it. It wasn't merely to do good miracles and works for those that were broken and hurting, so that was important. It was to come to provide the remedy for humanity's greatest problem, which is our sin our sin and our eternal destiny and punishment and hell and separation from him because of our sin. And he did that by going to die on the cross. But Jesus is coming to his farewell tour. And we saw several weeks ago that on Sunday of Passion Week, the week leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection, that he came in to Jerusalem in triumphant uh, 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 victory. And then the people were so excited. They took palm branches and they're waving them at Jesus saying, Hosanna to God in the highest. And they were real excited to welcome in their conquering warrior. But Jesus, to show his mission and his purpose, came in right on a donkey to signify that the prophets had foretold that he would also be a suffering savior. And, and they didn't really like that aspect of it. We love a Messiah that comes to conquer all our enemies and provide us with political power. But when he calls us to suffer because he suffered for our sins, boy, that's just a Messiah that it's difficult to accept. 
And so uh, we saw the controversy there. We saw uh, then following uh, on Monday and Tuesday of, of Passion Week, uh, we see that, that Jesus is speaking to the crowds, most likely Monday, and we saw that Jesus is transitioning because there were those who were Gentiles, those who were not from Israel or were not Jewish. They were coming now, and they were seeking out Jesus. They had heard about this Messiah of Israel, and they wanted to get to know Him, and they wanted to talk to Him. But Jesus said, no, first what I need to do is I need to be glorified. And he says, the way I'm going to be glorified, my path to glory is to be lifted up, not on a throne, but to be lifted up on a cross so that I could draw all people, Jew and Gentile, to myself. We come to John chapter 12, verses 35 to 43 in, in Jesus' farewell tour. We'll, we'll be looking at verses 36 to 43, but I'd like to read in John 12, 35 to 43. Follow along. Excuse me, as I read aloud. So Jesus said to them, verse 35, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he, is, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Here we have Jesus' farewell tour, and something amazing happens here in the second half of verse 36. It says that Jesus departed and hid himself from them. He hid himself from the crowds who consisted of the Jewish leaders and others who longed to listen, but refused to accept the truth about Jesus' identity. So what does Jesus do? He departs. And he hides himself from them. I mean, this is weird, right? Why, why would Jesus leave? I mean, think about it. He's not, afraid of, a, he's not afraid, afraid of people with leprosy. He's not afraid of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and, and even prostitutes. He's not afraid if someone comes to him with blindness, he gives them sight. He's not afraid of somebody that's lame, he causes them to walk. Uh, he's not afraid if, you know, there's not enough food to serve everybody. He just multiply it and feed thousands of people. Jesus is willing to hang out with a lot of sin. He's willing to hang out with a lot of brokenness. He's not even afraid when he comes to a tomb and finds out his friend Lazarus is in there. He says, Lazarus, come forth. He's not afraid of any of that. But here we have Jesus waving, flicking off the light switch, and walking out of the room. What would cause Jesus to do something like this? 
What would cause him to walk away from the crowds that he was called to save? And what we see in this passage is John gives us a brief commentary in the middle of Jesus' farewell tour to help his audience, the readers, you and me understand the one thing that would make Jesus walk out of the room, and that's this. Unbelief. Unbelief. And it weighs heavy on my heart this morning. I've been asking, Lord, I want a fun sermon to preach. But yet here we have the text about unbelief. Well, what is unbelief? Uh, Webster's Dictionary describes unbelief as incredulity or, or skepticism, especially in matters of religious faith. It's, it's looking at the evidence here and saying, eh, I don't know if I can buy all that. I mean, a risen Savior? I mean, is this person really, I'm, I'm really supposed to give my life over to this person, this person that I've never seen with my eyes or heard his voice with my ears? I don't know about that. Unbelief. Unbelief. Dictionary of Bible themes defines unbelief as the lack of faith and trust in God. Now listen to this. That challenges his truthfulness and finds expression in disobedience and rebellion. So it's not just a matter of, I don't believe in my heart. It works itself out in unbelief and disobedience and rebellion. Bible sense lexicon about unbelief. It's the trait of not trusting or relying on the God of Israel and Jesus as his Messiah. Now we're getting a little bit more specific. It's not just a lack of faith and trust and obedience to God in general, but, but specifically believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And this is, gets to the point where the, the people are listening to Jesus. They're having this dialogue, and he says, I'm going to go be lifted up, and you're not going to find me anymore. He walks out of the room, and he turns off the light switch and they don't see him anymore. Unbelief. Unbelief. And this unbelief is not just a problem for those that have never put their faith in Jesus. You see, unbelief is an issue, and it's a threat for you and for me. It's a threat right in these walls as we sit here today. You see, the threat of unbelief walked in this building when I walked in this building. The threat of unbelief walked in this building when you walked in here. It's a threat to all of our hearts, having a hard, unbelieving, cold heart toward God. In fact, we just heard a sermon last month, or two months ago, May 30th. Encouragement is urgent. Encouragement is urgent. Well, why is encouragement encouraging one another? Why is it urgent? We found in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, it says this, Take care, brothers. Not just outsiders, family, family of God. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friend, I'm here today and John's telling us that unbelief is a threat to every single one of us. This is a human problem. It's a condition and attitude toward God that stretches all the way back to the opening chapters of the scriptures, all the way back to Genesis 3, where there Adam and Eve are confronted with a choice. Do we believe what God has said, or do we listen to the lies of the serpent? And we know the story. They took the fruit and they ate because they did not believe the word of God, and they were cast out of the garden. This is a human problem, friends. 
a human problem, and it caused Jesus to turn the lights out on the crowds that were there. What would cause Jesus to turn out the light, to turn off the lampstand at Valley Bible Church? Unbelief. Unbelief. So our big idea this morning from John chapter 12, 36 to 43, is this. Unbelief is our undoing. Unbelief is our undoing. It's the thing that will bring us to the end of ourselves, to our demise and our destruction. It's unbelief. Unbelief is our undoing. And we've got three points that we'll see here this morning. If you're a note taker, you want to grab out a device, help yourself take some notes, piece of paper and pen, that's the old school way you can do that way too. Unbelief is our undoing. And, and here are three points that we'll look at in just a moment. Point number one is this. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. Point number two, unbelief makes us callous to the Lord's compassion. Unbelief makes us callous to the Lord's compassion. And point number three, unbelief flips our focus upside down. Unbelief flips our focus upside down. Before we take a, a look at these, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we come to you today because we recognize that our hearts are always threatened by unbelief. And I'm here first in line to tell you, Lord, that I know that there are days where I am not full of faith or I'm full of doubt and sin and rebellion. But I, I lead my friends here today. We come before you to say, oh, Lord, help our unbelief. We want to believe. And so we trust you that you'll show us the glory of Jesus from these verses today and that uh, you would open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. We trust that you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, unbelief is our undoing. And point number one is this. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. Take a look at the first reason why Jesus turns off the light switch and walks out of the room. John 12, 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And John refers to the works, the miraculous things that Jesus did. Think of turning water to wine. Think of healing a lame man. Think of giving sight to the blind and raising Lazarus from the dead. All of these amazing things, John uses a specific word to describe these, and he calls them signs. And John says, though many of these signs were done before them. Now think about a sign. What do we know about a sign? Is a sign an end in and of itself? In fact, we were just driving with my son yesterday, right? He's learning how to drive. And we were driving. I said, hey, what do you see that big octagonal thing that's painted red and it's got big letters on it? It's stop, right? It's a sign, but if you just roll right through it, the sign doesn't mean anything. You have to respond to it. And so John is saying, I've, Jesus has done these things as signs to point to the fact that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. Well, they refused to recognize these signs, though they saw the signs. In fact, I have to believe that Lazarus was either in the room with them or not far away, yet they know that Lazarus has been risen from the dead, and they still did not believe. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. 
John the Baptist had come on the scene. He'd been announcing, hey, hey, this Messiah is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This guy is amazing. You get better get ready for him. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he's doing all these signs, but they wouldn't listen to John the Baptist. They wouldn't listen to the apostles. They wouldn't listen to Jesus himself. They refused to believe the evidence. And as John is seeing this happen in front of him, And as he's writing about it years later, he's got another scroll open, and it's the scroll of Isaiah. And he's looking back on the scroll of Isaiah the prophet that prophesied and ministered 700 years before Jesus' ministry. And he looks back and he says, there's nothing new under the sun. This was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. In verse 38, John quotes Isaiah. In fact, This comes from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. And in Isaiah 53, it's really magnificent because the prophet Isaiah is speaking about one who would come to be a suffering servant for the people. One who would come and suffer, and he would reveal the strong arm of God's salvation. And in the middle of this this prophecy about the suffering servant, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, he says... Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, this suffering servant, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah was speaking of a suffering servant who would be wounded for the trespasses of the people, that he would be crushed for their iniquities and would take on the punishment that they deserved so that they could have peace with God. So at the triumphant entry, you know what? The the people back in John 11 and 12, they loved seeing this conquering warrior, but they said, I don't know about this suffering servant. This one who would be wounded, this one who would be crushed, this one who would be a man of sorrows. And John is reading the scroll of Isaiah and he looks and he sees, ah, this is a prediction that we knew would come. When the suffering servant would come on the scene, the people would reject him. They would not believe upon him. You see, this, isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with a lack of evidence. Jesus has shown time and time again, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. It's not an issue of evidence, it's an issue of the heart. They refused to believe the evidence. It was a willful refusal. And Isaiah saw it, and John sees it. It's happening right in front of his eyes. Well, why? Why would, they, why would they refuse to believe? Well, we see back in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, John again is addressing this idea of unbelief and the condemnation that comes upon you and me and all of humanity because our refusal to recognize the truth. In John 3, 18 to 20, John writes, Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, there's our unbelief, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. How about this? The light's there, 
but the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate the presence of the light. There's Jesus in their midst. He says, I am the light of the world. The light is with you just a little while longer. They say, well, we hate that light. We don't want anything to do with that. See, we're condemned already. We were born condemned because of our unbelief, and it's our undoing. Our unbelief does not stem from a lack of reason or, or rationale. We don't reject truths about Jesus and His Word. We reject Him because of our morals, because we love doing evil. We love gratifying the sinful, fleshly desires of our hearts. I feel it every day. I feel it every day. Oh, I'd just love to give in to this sin, to that temptation. My heart longs for it, but oh, but oh, but oh, that is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus. We choose to reject Jesus' lordship in our lives because we prefer this. And listen, friends, we prefer a Messiah that's created in our image rather than one who is the true Messiah. We want a Messiah who suits our needs that can do for us what we want. And so this unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. I'll tell you, just examining this struck me right between the eyes. I've been praying all week. Lord, search me. Psalm 139 says, Search me, Lord. See if there's any wicked may in me. Is there any unbelief in my heart today? Is there any unbelief in your heart? What is the thing that Jesus has been asking you to do from his word Maybe it's a, a behavior. Maybe it's, it's the courage to tell a friend who needs to hear the good news about Jesus and sharing that with them. Maybe it's, it's turning off that device so that you could invest in your children. Uh, maybe it's fleeing from some other kind of pride or sinful temptation. You can't have a Messiah made in your own image. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. Will we bow to the Lordship of Jesus? Unbelief is our undoing. Unbelief is our undoing. And point number one, we saw unbelief refused to, excuse me, refuses to recognize the truth. Point number two, unbelief makes us callous to the Lord's compassion. Unbelief makes us callous to the Lord's compassion. Let's take a look at, again at John 12, 39 through 40. It says this, John writes, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And this is a, this is a statement of ability. He says again in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. It's, it's, it's very strong there. It's the idea of ability. They, they couldn't believe. Why? Because not only were the facts in front of them, they refused them, but then their hearts are hardened to become hard. And John quotes Isaiah once again. Remember, John is writing this section with Isaiah open as well, and, and he's looking at the portion that we look at in Isaiah chapter 6. And now Isaiah 6 is amazing, friends. If you've never read Isaiah 6, you should go and read it later this afternoon. Talk about fireworks. I mean, holy smokes. There's Jesus, uh, excuse me, there's Isaiah taken up in a vision into the heavenly throne room. And he sees the glory there above the throne. It's absolutely amazing. And there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes. And Isaiah is just overwhelmed with the sight of his glory. And the train of, of the robe of God fills the temple with glory. It's absolutely amazing. And there are seraphim 
seraphim, these amazing, weird-looking, angelic creatures that are around the throne and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory, of His glory. And Isaiah recognizes, man, I, I don't know if I should be hanging out here. This is too much for me. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. But one of those seraphim come over and take the coals and hot coals and purify his lips. And right in that moment, God says, Isaiah, I'm going to commission you for my service now. And this is what it says in Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10, which John is quoting here in John chapter 12. And Isaiah 6, 8 through 10 says this, And I heard a voice, Isaiah speaking, of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the, make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God's commissioning of Isaiah is this. He says, go warn this people, but they're not going to listen to you. God had patiently waited for Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. He was their God. He was their husband. He was their redeemer. But yet they kept turning to idols, worshiping the idols of the nations. And God, he sent warning after warning after warning after warning, but they would not turn. They would not repent. Uh, it was so bad that, 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 that God's people, God's very own people, would rebel against him and that they'd go to offer their children in the fire of Molech. Abominable. Grotesque. God would never ask such a thing and they would not repent though God had waited patiently for them and sent them warning. So right in this moment, God says, Isaiah, you're going to go and in judgment, I'm going to send you to prophesy in my name but the people aren't going to listen. That's part of my judgment. They're not going to listen. The word of the Lord would actually be the means through which their hearts would become hard because of their unbelief. The very means by which they could be saved and have hope to hear a message of repentance and faith and obedience to God would be the very thing that would harden their hearts even more and God would bring them ultimate judgment upon them because they would not believe. The hearts became callous to God's compassion. I tell you, I don't know if I could sign up for Isaiah's message. That's a hard one. I mean, if I was told this morning before I came out here in my office and there was a vision, God said, you're going to come out and preach this sermon this morning, Matt, and guess what? The very message, the words that you're going to say today are going to be the very means by which I judge these people. I don't know that I could sign up for that. But that's what Isaiah was called to do. Because people, you and me, Israel, in, in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, we have a hard, unbelieving heart that makes us callous to the Lord's compassion. Paul saw it in his day too. He writes about uh, his, his fellow Jews and he's heartbroken over their unbelief. In Romans 11.8, he also has Isaiah's scroll open, and he quotes Isaiah 29.10. But Paul writes about the Jews, as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And you could almost see the drops of tears 
pouring off of Paul's chin as it drops on the parchment as he writes this. A hard, calloused heart toward the Lord's compassion. Well, lest we think this is just an Israel problem, just a Jewish problem, we also see that Paul writes that this is a human problem, that our hearts become callous to God's compassion. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19 says this, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And in case you don't know, Gentiles, anybody who's not of the nation of Israel, it's not an ethnic Jew, okay? All you Gentiles, you used to live in darkness. He says, uh, uh, no longer walk as they do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their lack of evidence. No, no. Due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy and uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We become callous toward God. The very person with the very message, with the very solution that each of us needs so that we can receive God's good mercy and passion because we know that He's the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but because of our cold, calloused, hard hearts, we will not receive His compassion. To make matters worse, not only we callous toward God, we become callous toward one another. Jesus experienced this during his ministry, this cold hearts toward one another. And in Mark chapter 3 describes a, a situation where Jesus was going to uh, help uh, heal a man with a withered hand. And it says in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Again, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Uh, The obvious answer should be, right? To save, to heal, to do good. But look at the response. But they were silent. And he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Friends, unbelief is our undoing. Hardness of heart It makes us hard to the two great commandments. The the first commandment is, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus says in Matthew 22, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This cold, uh, calloused, unbelieving heart won't receive God's compassion when he offers it, and it keeps us from offering the compassion that we ought to give to others. We kill each other. We hurt each other. We betray each other. Oh, unbelief is our undoing. Our hearts are hardened even to respond to God's mercy. We become callous to His compassion. The longer we dig in our heels to unbelief, the harder our hearts become. Friends, be warned. Beware. Today is the day of God's mercy. Today, God's compassion is offered to you through Jesus Christ. Today, you have light, but tomorrow, there's no guarantee God may turn off your lights and face judgment. 
But today, the lights are on. Oh, friend, don't dig in your heels in unbelief today. Believe and be saved. Receive God's compassion. Receive His offer of mercy. Don't remain in your unbelief and become hard in your hearts. Unbelief is our undoing, friends. It's our undoing. Unbelief refuses to recognize the truth. Unbelief becomes callous to the Lord's compassion. And thirdly, unbelief flips our focus upside down. Let's take a look again at John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. Excuse me, 41 through 43. So again, with Isaiah open, John is, is, is commenting here. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Here's what's happening there. They, 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 the, the, the synagogue was like the church for the Jewish people of that time. It was their gathering place. And it wasn't just for religious purposes. It was for social purposes. So that if you were cast out of the synagogue by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, you were actually outcast as, as, a, as, as a person in the community. And so they were afraid. I, you know, this Jesus is starting to make a lot of sense to me. But you know what? I'm just not sure that I'm ready to say anything because I'm afraid I might get kicked out of the synagogue. And it goes on to say, verse 43, why would they do such a thing? Here's why. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Unbelief flips our focus upside down. You see, what these, these leaders were displaying was just a half-hearted belief the half-hearted belief that they were unwilling to confess. You see, friends, true, genuine, saving faith in Jesus, it begins in the heart, but it inevitably, always will reveal itself through one's life and confession and obedience to Jesus. This was a half-hearted confession. They were unwilling to confess it. Jesus said, if you won't acknowledge my name before, uh, before men, I will not acknowledge your name before my Father is in heaven. The belief has to begin in the heart, but it has to come out to confess Jesus as Lord and to say, I want to commit to him with all my life. But these, these people were unwilling to do it because they had their focus flipped upside down. These religious believers... Uh, religious leaders, excuse me, these religious leaders, they actually believed this. They believed that the glory that comes from man is greater than the glory that comes from God. This is insane, friends. This is insane to think this way, but this is how our hearts believe. You know, if you, if you like mathematics, you know the signs greater than, less than, right? I don't know how I used to do it, like a Pac-Man thing my elementary teacher taught me, right? Greater than, less than. Oh, the, the, the truth is this, the glory of God is greater than the glory of man. But here we have the equation flipped upside down where these people actually believe the glory of man is greater than the glory of God. It's insane to think this way, but that's what unbelief does to our hearts. We actually believe that the pitiful, puny, temporal, little accolades and pats on the back that we could receive from one another is greater than the glory that God could bestow upon us when we put our faith in Jesus and offer our lives to Him and receive His eternal life. It's insane, friends. It's insane. 
Jesus had already commented on this to the religious leaders all the way back in John chapter 5 in verses 39 to 44. He had just healed a lame man on the Sabbath and they were challenging his authority once again. They were refusing to recognize the truth. Their hearts were cold and callous toward him. And he says this, you search the scriptures, John 5, 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Wow, what a statement. You've got no love for God in you. I've come in my Father's name, Jesus says, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his known name, you will receive him. And here's the kicker, verse 44 of John 5. How can you believe? How can you believe? when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Friend, if, if you care about your reputation more than Jesus, you cannot believe. If you care about the things that this world has to offer more than the devotion to Jesus, you cannot believe. Unbelief flips our focus upside down until God does a work in our hearts to put it right side up again. We cannot believe because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, our, our purpose, and if you've not heard this before, I want to tell you again, our purpose for why we were created was to bear God's image and to reflect His glory back to Him and to one another in this world. We were created to reflect His glory and to enjoy His glory together with Him in this world to, uh, forever. Yet in unbelief, we've turned our perspective upside down, favoring the puny praise of people over the eternally satisfying joy of basking in God's glory in a perfect relationship with Him. We've believed the lie of Satan in the garden and we've been ripped off ever since. It's insane to love the glory of man more than the glory of God, but that's what unbelief does. It flips our focus upside down. Uh, C.S. Lewis, his, his most famous sermon that he ever preached, the great theologian and apologist uh, of England, in June 1942, he preached a sermon in Oxford called The Weight of Glory. It's a sermon on how the glory of God is something to be enjoyed and something to render back to Him. But he begins by indicting the twisted nature of our desires that we flip our focus around in unbelief. We think that if we can obtain what our hearts long and lust for in this world, we'll be satisfied. But in reality, we're trading in the worthy for the worthless. And this is what C.S. Lewis says in this sermon. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We have little loves. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We trade in true love for lust. We trade in paradise for political power. We prefer a pat on the back 
overhearing from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. We prefer the safety of our little comfort zones over giving ourselves over so that others may see the beauty of Jesus through our words and our actions. Friends, we're far too easily satisfied. We're far too easily pleased seeking the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. Today, what kind of glory are you seeking? What are you running after? Oh, friend, if you're running after anything other than the glory that comes from Jesus, you are running after something that is puny and putrid compared to the magnificent glory of Jesus. Oh, you've got your focus flipped upside down, and that unbelief could be your undoing here today. It could be the undoing of Valley Bible Church if we ever seek the glory that comes from men over the glory that comes from God. But our belief is our undoing. First, we refuse to recognize the truth. Second, we become callous to God's compassion. Uh, We've turned our world upside down, thirdly. And this unbelief, this only thing that would make Jesus walk out of the room is the threat of our lives. What would cause Jesus to walk out of the room? It's not your sin. (laughs) It's not your rebellion. It's not your brokenness. It's not your past. It's not your perceived inadequacies. What will cause Jesus to walk out of the room and turn off the lights? It's a heart that refuses to believe in him. Unbelief is our undoing. Jesus has come. He's come to be the light of the world, to give us light and hope. But in our rebellion and unbelief, we say, no thanks, Jesus. We close the door as he walks out. We turn off the lights. Unbelief. Unbelief is our undoing. That's John's point here, as he's got Isaiah opened, and he sees the similarities. He sees the prophecies being fulfilled right in front of his eyes. Now, we could stop there, and I think that we would have done faithfulness to the text, I hope, but what I want us to do for just a moment as we get ready to close is consider, what is John's purpose in writing this all to begin with? Remember, John writes this gospel, he says, not so that I would criticize unbelief, but at the end of his gospel, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So if you feel the weight of the indictment on your shoulders, I'm so glad you joined me this week. I've been feeling it all week. But for a moment as we close, let's go to point number four that I didn't share with you earlier. Point number four, and it's this. Unbelief may be our undoing, but unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus. Unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus. Look back in our text, John 12, 41. It says, Isaiah said these things. Why? Because he saw his glory. Who's he? Who's his? This is Jesus he's talking about. How does he see Jesus, a man who was there standing in front of him, but he says, Isaiah saw him 700 years before. Friend, this is a magnificent verse. 
John is saying that he, that Isaiah saw Jesus before the Word ever put on flesh. He saw Him there, seated on that throne, glorious, up in His heavenly vision 700 years before. This is a magnificent truth that John is telling us. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And Isaiah was transformed. Why? Because he got a full taste of all the glory of Jesus. And it was no match for his unbelief. No match whatsoever. In John chapter 1, the beginning of this gospel, John says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is this Word? It's Jesus Himself. He tabernacled among us, put His tent in the midst of our camp, and He said, we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus. Well, well, see, not everybody, not all the disciples believed in Jesus. We get all the way to the end in John 20. We're going to see it in the months to come. But after Jesus rises from the dead, we've got one of our favorite characters, good old, unbelieving, doubting Thomas. He just cannot accept that Jesus is truly risen from the dead. Though all his friends have seen him, and he said, unless I touch the wound in his side and the wounds on his hands, I'll never believe. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and says, my majesty is no match for your unbelief. Belief. I mean, your unbelief is no match for my majesty, Thomas. In John 20, 27 and 28, Jesus says to Thomas, here, come here, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And what's Thomas's answer? He gets on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Friends, if you're here today, if you've been struggling with an unbelieving heart, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, oh, if we could present to you the majesty of the risen Jesus so that you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, my Lord and my God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I close with this verse. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6 through says this, Paul writes, even if our good news is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the good news, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friend, unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus that's what will keep the lights on at Valley Bible Church. That's what will keep the lights on in your heart and in your lives. And if you've never put faith in Jesus, if you want the light switch to come on, oh, look to Jesus. Look to His majesty. He's more glorious than anything we could ever look at. He's more satisfying than anything that we could ever pursue. Unbelief is no match for His majesty. And I love what it says in just a few verses before in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with an unveiled face, uncovered, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Friends, how, how do we get changed every day? 
How do we live the Christian life? Well, we live because the veil's been taken away and we behold the glory of the Lord and he's transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. Unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus. You know, Jesus said back in John 12, 35 to 36, and we've looked at it plenty enough, but he says, while the light is here, walk in the light and get out of the darkness. You know, I, I was comparing this as I was thinking about it this week. You know, many of us, we are living in unbelief, and that's like walking out at nighttime and just being enamored with the little twinkling stars. And we think, oh, that'll give me enough light, and we walk around and we're tripping over stuff and we're bumping into people and we're stubbing our toe and we're getting hurt. And we think, this is the life. Look at how grand those stars are. But Jesus is saying, why don't you come out in the day? Why don't you come out? And if you go out here today, and if the sky is clear now, you'll see that, you know what? The sun is magnificent. And where, where do the stars go? Are they still there? Oh yeah, they're still there. But the light of the sun just makes all those stars fade away. All the pleasures of this world, friends, will fade away when we come to bask in the bright glow of Jesus' glory. If you think those stars are magnificent, oh, come and look in the glorious face of Jesus. We're going to close here with just a few refrains of a, of a song that I remember singing as a kid, and I've heard a few groups and singers uh, bring it back a little bit more recently. It's a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. How many of you know that? You know that? Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And as Bobby gets ready to, to play as we close with this song, I, I just want to read some of the lyrics for you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness, you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying his perfect salvation to tell and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Unbelief is our undoing, but unbelief is no match for the majesty of Jesus. So let this be your prayer as we stand together and let's sing while we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow Oh
that'll be your prayer this week. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that's what we offer to a lost and broken and dying world. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. As I commission us in prayer here in just a moment, I want to invite you, anybody, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're here today and you're saying, I'm not sure, but I feel something drawing me. We're going to have some leaders down here, elders and deacons and, and others. If you'd join me, we would invite you. Please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. If you're hurting, if you feel like I've been living in unbelief, I want to get out of the night and I want to come back into the light. We want to pray with you. We want to pray with you. Let's, let's bow in prayer as we're commissioned. Father in heaven, Unbelief is our undoing. And you could have left us there, shut out of the garden, destined for hell and punishment, but you sent your son Jesus, full of grace and compassion, so that we could be rescued. Father, unbelief is our undoing. We refuse to recognize the truth. Our hearts get calloused, and we flip the whole perspective on the world upside down. But, but I thank you that Jesus outdoes our unbelief. Our unbelief is no match for His majesty. And Father, for those that are leaving here in just a few moments, I pray that you would allow us to be living and encouraging one another because unbelief is always knocking on the door. But we will look to Jesus together. We will turn our eyes upon Him and the things of this world will grow strangely dim when we behold His glory. Oh, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that has never come to say, I look to the Savior, I look to Jesus. Oh, Father, would you draw them today? Draw them. Overcome their unbelief so that they may be saved, Father. Give them boldness and courage to come forward so that we can help them and show them Jesus. But we go now commissioned, not giving each other pats on the back, not merely trying to seek the glory that comes from one another, but we go reflecting the glory of our magnificent Savior to a lost and dying world. Would you go with us on this day of great independence for the church because of what Jesus has done? It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray all this. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a blessed day.